0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and I'm thrilled to release this final episode of 2020 as I'm going to take a little time off here over the holidays to wrap up the manuscript for my new book, Education's Big Rally, that will be out in 2021. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins for updates on where to get the book and maybe where you can pre-order as uh, very excited about this new project on the way. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to take just a few minutes to say thank you, not only to all of you that listen uh, on a regular basis to the Reimagined Schools podcast, but to all the school leaders, teachers, and support staff out there that have worked tirelessly to keep our schools open. Regardless of the format, from remote learning to hybrid options, the education community continues to rise to the challenge through the pandemic. To meet the needs of millions of kids across the globe, as we look to the new year, I know you share my hope that one day soon we can return to hugs and high fives with our kids who can't wait to see your smiling face again from behind the mask. So with that, let's get to it. I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation with Michael Fullan, a best-selling author and worldwide authority on education reform. Michael serves as the global leadership director for new pedagogies for deep learning. He's also the former dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Michael also advises policymakers and local leaders around the world. He's worked with Tony Blair, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom, and Dalton McGuinty, the former premier of Ontario, to lead systemic change around the world with the application of Deeper Learning Strategies. So as we wrap up another year, folks, I want to wish everyone a Happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, and Happy Holidays here from the Reimagined Schools podcast. We'll be back in 2021 with new episodes, but for now, let's crank it up one last time in 2020. My conversation with Michael Fullan begins right now. Hey, y'all. I'm Casey Bell from the Shake Up Learning Show a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Reimagine Schools podcast, the show that shines light on positive leadership, technology integration, and innovative solutions to transform our schools. Featuring many of the nation's top educators, tune in each week to hear from best-selling authors, popular speakers, and thought leaders throughout K-12 education as we continue the conversation on how to create better schools for kids. From the podcast studio in Georgetown, Kentucky, here's your host, Dr. Greg Goins. Hello again, everyone. We're back at it again with another great conversation on how to reimagine schools as we bring in one of the world's most prominent thought leaders on whole system change in education. A big welcome to Michael Fullen. How are you, sir?
1: I'm great, Greg. Thanks very much. Good to see you.
0: Well, I'm so delighted to have you here with us to spend some time talking about reimagined schools. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I followed your, your body of work for a very long time. By my count, you're the author of now over 40 books on change theory, deeper learning, school leadership. So you've been doing this work for a long time. So if we could, let's just start there. What continues to drive you and get you excited about this work that
1: you're doing? Well, I think the uh, major motivation is partly the work is uh, not only uh, unfinished, but it's getting to look more and more unfinished. So I would say I'm driven by uh, not just the moral purpose, that's a big part of it, but I'm driven by uh, the challenge of making something work and seeing the the human element come together and produce fantastic things. So I still think that's possible even though we're losing ground, but it's the challenge of uh, figuring out something that's very complex and very hard to do and very important for society.
0: You know, you have a background as a professor, Uh, you're also a practitioner, you're also a researcher, so you wear a lot of different hats. I've heard you say a few times that some of the most innovative ideas are coming from uh, those practitioners in the field. So really it's about practitioner-based learning more than theory.
1: Uh, It is very much that, and I use those words, uh, about halfway through my career, which was around the year 2000, I started to work with uh, as advisors to policymakers, uh, first to Tony Blair in England, and then in Ontario to Dalton McGuinty, who was the premier, who came in in 2003, as, a, as a, you know head of uh, Ontario, as prime as premier, and so he hired me as his advisor, and I shifted then literally from being a researcher to figuring out how to make things work on a large scale. Uh, Ontario has 5,000 schools. England has 22,000. So it it was through that that I began to learn, and I was already picking this up in some of my research, that the best ideas come from leading practitioners, not from all practitioners, but from leading practitioners. So from that point on, I began to, you might think of it this way, uh, team up with practitioners, do something significant, and then after you do it, write a book about it, not before, but after. And so this was practice chasing theory, practice developing theory. So that's what I've done since, uh, especially since 2000, around 2000.
0: You know, the work that you've done there in Canada, reforming the school system, I think is remarkable. And I recently had the good fortune of talking to Posse Salberg on the podcast. And of course, we talked a lot about the Finland education model. But you have an amazing story as well, right there in Canada. And you talked about Ontario to be specific. Uh, Around the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when you became an ad, uh, advisor there for the education system. How did Canada really take that green light to reform while so many other places are really kind of stuck in that old status quo model?
1: Well, Posse, who's a friend of mine as well, has become a friend. Uh, he, you will probably have heard him say that a lot of the best ideas that he uses are coming from United States research, which is not being implemented in the U.S. And so the ideas are there. They weren't just going anywhere. And uh, I guess you could say Finland knows a good idea when it sees it. And uh, and the same would apply to us in Ontario. So I had done a lot of the research in the uh, 70s and 80s and 90s even uh, with uh, colleagues in the U.S. And when we had a chance to uh, do something in Ontario, I think I would say it was more conducive in the sense that uh, uh, there was less... Uh, inappropriate pressure on piling on a solution, like No Child Left Behind, which really kind of made matters worse, even though it was, I think, well-intentioned. So we did it uh, in, a, in a kind of uh, quiet developmental way. I think the conditions were potentially greater here, and the uh, the tendency to avoid big mistakes, which is the big splash, which has too many uh, expectations and not enough of capacity to deliver, We avoided that and we built it. We were quiet about it, actually. 2003, when we started, we didn't start uh, uh, talking about the success until 2008, let's say. So we went about our business for those first five years. And I think sometimes uh, not being prone to the big promise uh, is an advantage if you're serious about getting the things to work and then leveraging the success into publicity, if you like, and into more of it more work uh, that is effective
0: you know as you know one of the criticisms of the finland model is it, it's a country that's small and a lot of folks here in the in the states don't really think that you can replicate that model just a, at scale but you you kind of disprove that uh that theory with what you did in ontario
1: yeah i mean in some ways it's a it's a um, I guess i'll say a convenient convenient excuse to write off uh you know, Singapore and Finland and others that are small, smallish uh, in size, and therefore they never apply. But uh, some people like Mark Tucker from NCEE picked this up early where he said, well, uh, look, Ontario is doing this, so there's no really excuses. It's very similar in diversity and in nature to to the US, but it's doing better. And so uh, I think people have, I don't know what to say, found it convenient not to notice that Ontario and uh, Alberta and British Columbia, which are in Quebec for that matter, which are all equally successful, are going about doing this under circumstances that on one hand are similar to the US, but on other ways, which uh, for example, unequal funding is a way that is a structural difference uh, and capacity of the teaching force, the, the, the respect of the teaching profession is greater in Canada than it is in the US. And so you've got some fundamental differences, but I think we have disproven disproven if you take comparing apples to apples, uh, we're, U.S. and ourselves are in the same apple domain and we're, we're going about it differently. Um, and as I, I said in reference to Passe, a lot of our ideas are uh, uh, steeped in U.S. research, research that originated in the U.S., like collaborative cultures.
0: And, you know, one of the positive things that I see, and, and I'm sure you see as well, there's really momentum and consistency building around this idea of things like design thinking and more specifically deeper learning. Uh, and I've actually heard you say that deeper learning is not another project. It's about changing the culture of your school. So uh, I think... The, the guess that I've had, if, if I ask 10 different people to define deep deeper learning, I probably get 10 different answers. So as you think about what deeper learning looks like in your mind, what, what conditions need to be present and how does that look different in a school setting?
1: Well, it's a big, uh, complicated question, Greg. Uh, and we've given a lot of thought. We've been doing this for seven years. We started deep learning seven years ago and, um, uh, I think we can, uh, I can define it, uh, I guess I'll say in essence, and then also in particulars, but really deep learning is quality learning that sticks with you the rest of your life. So if you think of it that way, what kind of learning experience is going to stick with you? And uh, it turns out it's not uh, the, I'm gonna say the obsession with academics that the US has with testing, that doesn't turn a lot of students on. Uh, And Students may do it some for instrumental reasons, but it doesn't get at uh, at the heart of it, and so we built our uh, quality learning in the first place. I think the foundation is very important around uh, purpose, meaning, um, connection to other people, contribution to the world. So those are all moral purposes that are are kind of uh, deeply uh, deep values, and they're actually the ones that young people now, this generation of young people, increasingly want. We can get. To the conditions how they've shifted in favor of deep learning. So we've got I think the essence of deep learning being uh, learning that really is working on something really key but also doing it uh, because it turns on and turns relates to the moral purpose or the actual purpose of what students want to do. So that's one thing but more more technically I guess I will say if you look at what other people have not done and what we're working on is that you have the uh, Curriculum goals, and you have the pedagogy or learning, and you have the assessment of progress. I'll simplify it just to those three. And the curriculum goals, our overriding goals, are the six Cs, the, the global competency. So character, citizenship, collaboration, communication, uh, creativity, and critical thinking. We've operationalized all those. We've got rubrics. We've, got, uh, we've put them in practice in systems. So I think uh, the foundation to start with Instead of having just academics, we have those, we have this uh, deeper part, which is around the six Cs. So I'm gonna call that the curriculum. And then the teaching is completely uh, uh, repositioned so that students and teachers individually, and collectively are the, uh, are the drivers. Uh, the, it's not the teacher transmitting knowledge, it's that this has been well spelled out. Also people have uh, talked for a while, they, they call it the, uh, the grammar of schooling. Some of the researchers had said the grammar of schooling, the traditional, has been around for 125 years. It hasn't has only changed in this or that innovative school, but basically in the in regular school. So we're changing the grammar of school around this second part, which is uh, uh, how pedagogy is is different. Uh, we have a, in our model four elements of pedagogy. I won't go on spelling all these out, but these are these are making the six Cs come alive through the learning. And then the third part is assessing how well are students doing on, the, uh, on uh, well-being, on, um, on handling the, the demands, and on progress around the six Cs and even on the academics. So it's a better, it's a better model. Uh, it's more uh, conducive to uh, where, where the need is, and uh, it, it, it inspires people more once you do it. Uh, we are doing it on scale. I want to say, in the sense that we only work with systems—a school district or a set of schools. We don't work with schools one at a time. We still are not at scale. We're in ten countries, but it's, subten- it's substantial.
0: And you know, we we talk a lot about creating student-centered classrooms, and obviously that should be the goal. But even if you go back, you know, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, I've also heard you say that education was stalled and, and the reason a lot of students were disconnected and continue to be disconnected is we're not putting them in a position to really chase, chase their talents and their passions and really do things that are meaningful to them.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think uh, on the stalled question, I've written about this in more, more ways than one is uh, pre-COVID, let's go back to December uh, 2019, which seems like not so long ago, but feels like it's long ago. Uh, in December 2019 and all that, those previous years, uh, the system was stalled and the best indicator is, you can take this in US and um, Australia and England and le- less in Ontario, but still this direction, that uh, it, if you take 16 year olds, the majority of 16 year olds, and I'm, I'm willing to say it that way, uh, are not really finding schooling all that eng- engaging, the majority of 16 year olds. So if you have that as your starting point, you really have, uh, you really have nothing to leverage unless you change the nature of learning to make it uh, more engaging and our deep learning is definitely more engaging. And I think the second thing is uh, if we take equity and uh, the strive for equity, this is, uh, this is a fascinating phenomenon in some way, a terrible one because the more money that's being put into equity, the less that is achieved if we take the US as the model. There's lots of money that's and lots of emphasis uh, and it's just the wrong approach. You don't, you don't get equity by trying to uh, kind of uh, hammer home with students how they should be literate as, as your only kind of starting point. And that's a bit unfair to characterize it that way. But I wanna say this, that we are finding that around the six C's, that uh, it's good for all types of students, but it's especially good for students who have been disconnected. So the students have been disconnected because they haven't been uh, linked in in a relevant way that would tap into the potential and motivation and, and leverage it. That's what we're doing and we think we're going to have something good to say about how equity is also served by deep learning. It's a bit of counterintuitive because when we first started people thought that Well, it's the best students that will take advantage of deep learning. We're finding it's any student who is uh, wanting to do something but is not able to do it now, they are candidates for deep learning. And we see that in our work.
0: You know, the deep learning conversation is fascinating to me because you really can't have those conversations without talking also about deep change. And change is something, again, that you've written extensively about. I've heard you say on numerous occasions, that change really comes from the bottom up. And so as a former superintendent myself, former high school principal, uh, it just really has to be a a shift in the way we think about changing systems. Is that a fair
1: assessment? I think that is uh, accurate. And uh, our our very latest book that I did with Mary Jean Gallagher, who was the uh, head of the Literacy and Numeracy Secretariat in the the Ministry of Education Ontario, in the government in other words, uh, I worked with her when she was inside the government on these strategies, and then she uh, left that job and is part of our team now for the last two years. We just published a book called The Devil is in the Details. Uh, so kind of a, a, a you know, provocative title, but in it we say, okay, let's take, the, there are three levels. There's the local school level, there's the different district and medium level, and there's government, although you can divide that in your case into uh, state and federal. And we said that uh, solid change has to, has to eventually incorporate all three levels on the, you know, going in the same direction. But maybe the, the best pressure point is that, uh, and this is uh, compatible with, I also read evolutionary theory, the biologists who basically say that evolution, quality evolution is uh, relentlessly bottom up is the phrase they use. So we believe that it's relentlessly bottom up. And that's why we are working on that but it's not like just the bottom and forget about the other two. Uh, right away, uh, the district is implicated. You were a superintendent, so you know the importance of that. And if we can get just those first two levels, school and district, two-way co-developers, which happens in the best districts, then that's something. But then there's the big problem, and the biggest problem is the government has not done its part whether we take state or federal. Uh, it's, been, it's either been uh, too laissez-faire or too wrongly impositional. Uh, they haven't really uh, kind of mastered the art of joint or co-development.
0: And, and I think that's well said. And as we think about, about changing the system and deeper learning specifically, uh, I've also heard you say that, that deep learning radically changes the nature of teaching. And I've had a lot of guests on the podcast talk about how the role of the teacher has to change. So if you think about this big shift uh, in pedagogy, uh, that, I mean, that's a conversation that's tough to have for a lot of folks that are still kind of in that stand and deliver uh, direct traditional instruction mode. How do you get people to kind of dip their toe into the deep end and kind of shift, shift the culture of pedagogy?
1: Well, again, that's fundamental. Um, and I would say it and I respond to it in two parts. One is uh, uh, to, to understand the change. And we have really spelled it out. You'll see a chart in our, our books that said here's the former role of teachers and beside it is the new role of teachers and students and it shows very clearly what it is. So I think the, um, the first thing to realize is that there will be an initial resistance because it's a change in culture, but we have found time and again that teachers, uh, it's, we have a lot of sticky phrases, the one I use here is go slow to go fast. So at the beginning, when people are experiencing this new- newness, there's a lot of awkwardness and there's a lot of uh, hesitant- hesitancy because it feels uncomfortable. It's new for everybody. And, uh, and so there's that beginning. <clears throat> but if you have the support, it kicks in very quickly. And once it starts to kick in, you and your colleagues start to leverage each other. So uh, that's the, the psychology of the initial change, It mean, uh, means immediately the leadership has to be different the school principal leadership, the district leadership, because they have to see that they're overseeing a system and helping with a system. That uh, it's really the growth mindset, right? It's, uh, it's uh, uh, respecting that this is a learning curve, knowing that there'll, there'll be mistakes, knowing that you actually learn from your st- mistakes, having school principals, as we say, participate as learners in this. So everyone is learning, but we find because the ideas are good, and because it kicks in, that it accelerates. So it's go slow, and then it ramps up. And so instead of thinking it's going to take five years, you're often running. I'm going to say by year two at a school level, and and at a district level by the end of the second year. So so that's promising. But we need those risk takers at the school level who are willing to go through the initial discomfort, and uh, and and then we need the leaders who will participate in reinforce it. The students are great allies, actually, if we ever open up, as, some, as our systems do, to thinking of them as co-developers, as leaders of change, as, uh, as change makers of the present and the future. Uh, that's what they want. That's where the learning means something to them, for them.
0: And we also know that disruption um, is a great motivator and provides great potential for change. So as you think about the, the sample size now we have for remote learning over a five or six month period, um, you know, what What long-term change do you hope lands on the other side of all this? And are you optimistic uh, about what you're seeing and hopeful for the future?
1: On the first part, uh, we wrote a short report for uh, Microsoft that was published in uh, May uh, called Education Reimagined. And so we said, okay, yeah, obviously COVID is disruptive, and which means that it has uh, potential for uh, doing the changes we should have done last year but now we can they're exposed now the silver linings let's say but it also has a, a, a potential going backwards if we if we mess it up so i think we're at a really crucial point right now where in in our when we look at the data about how students are reacting to COVID, it's kind of in three groups one is some group, maybe 25%, are saying, This gives me time I never had before, and I'm really loving and learning. I'm doing things that I didn't do before, 25%. You have another 50% that are at sea. They're, they're really, they're, they were dependent on the structure. They weren't doing so well necessarily, anyways, so they're really losing ground. And then you have some in between. So, having said that, uh, I think we, uh, it's so complex right now and so prolonged, we thought it would last six months, it's going to last a year and a half, let's say, is that it's hard to get, get your head above water. It's really just survival in some ways, but we are keeping track of what are the good things that are happening that we might be able to leverage if we can get to the next little more um, ability to go to the next uh, phase. So uh, I tend to be an optimist, uh, optimist, but I'm a careful optimist now, I guess I'll say if that is a real phrase that says, uh, that we've got the opportunity. Uh, we, we we call it pent-up ideas. But we also say it can go either way. It can get worse or it can get better and this is the chance. This is, this is a now or never chance of the last 50 years to make it significantly better uh, so that the upside risk is really, high. I mean the upside opportunity is very strong because we could leapfrog in a way that we didn't. The goal is not to survive COVID only but to uh, end up with a system that was better than we had in December of 2019.
0: And, you know, personally, I think the two really great things that come out of a pandemic, if something positive could come out of that situation, is number one is recognizing that technology is no longer an add-on that you do uh, to enhance uh, the learning, but it needs to be a fundamental part of the core of learning. And the other thing is is the relationship that we have with parents and families. You know, understanding that now it has to be a partnership if we're gonna have any success in this new remote learning
1: world. Those are exactly right. I had um, that that, um, when I I did a paper in 2011 that was called uh, Choosing the Wrong Drivers for Educational Success. And I actually had technology as a wrong driver because people were buying it and buying it and they weren't putting it into good pedagogical use. But now we see, and in our model, uh, we have four elements for supporting learning. One of them is called leveraging digital. And so this, uh, that we, we see now that is very obvious to people that digital is essential. Uh, yeah, there are misuses of it. Yes, there's incapacity or even lack of broadband, but it's, it's here to stay and it's got huge potential. Figuring out that potential is, is the issue and it is around uh, better pedagogy, better global competencies. And then the other thing, as you said, the good surprise was parents, And I, I know in my own field of educational change, we always saw parents as passive recipients of good education or not, but they were somewhat passive as a group. And now, growingly, because of the complexity of change and the complexity of the world, it's, it's essential that, uh, that school districts and parents and community become partners in the solution. And this has made this, uh, uh, parents have seen how, in a sense, how essential the school is for their children and how potentially essential it is for learning. And the parent has tried to uh, uh, make up for the lack of learning in the COVID period is finding this is not an easy job. And this is not really even possible for them. So I think we, uh, when I talk about silver lining, it's repositioning digital and it's uh, having parents as partners and it's having students as learners and change makers. Those are the silver linings.
0: My guest today is Michael Fullan. You can follow him on Twitter at MichaelFullan1. Also check out his website, MichaelFullan.ca there in Canada. Uh, Michael, it's been a great conversation, and the time flies. I can't thank you enough for being here, and I certainly want to respect your time. But I do want to kind of close with thoughts on leadership. And some of your most recent work has really kind of landed on nuance. And can you speak to that a little bit as we kind of wrap things up and talk about school leadership?
1: Right, yeah. um... We had already kind of uh, uh, arrived at the decision or the, uh, the conclusion that good leadership uh, leaders, whether it's school or district, participate as learners with uh, teachers and principals and others. Participate as learners, the key phrase. And, uh, and I wrote the book Nuance because what I was seeing is there were some leaders who were being effective and others weren't, that weren't, but they were seem to be working with the same concepts, that is uh, vision, professional learning, capacity building, all of those things we endorsed. But I was also saying that some leaders were actually getting deeper into it. And I called it nuance. And I just illustrated best uh, nuance. You can think of it in terms of those leaders who immerse themselves in the particular context in which they're working. And they're in that context as learners and influencers. So it is, uh, I called it uh, deep contextual literacy, which is too much of an awkward phrase. But think of it this way as well. Every time a, uh, a, 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 every time a person changes jobs, goes to a new situation, they become automatically de-skilled in relation to that context until they learn more deeply. And, of course, COVID has changed the context without us moving anywhere. It's just changed it beneath our feet. So COVID is a classic example where nuance is required, where you're actually figuring out the solution within the context that you have trying to influence the context for the better around the priorities we've talked in this podcast.
0: So, as you think about the next project, I know you're engaged with deeper learning um, and you're doing a lot of things uh, along those lines. And I recently heard you uh, do a webinar with Mark Edwards, the great former superintendent in uh, North Carolina um, around technology. And you're kind of thinking about doing something with silver lining. Is that the next big project?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things and I, I think the time uh, around this, the disruption of COVID and the notion of, well it has to be working anyways, here are some elements that uh, could work. There's a really a uh, fork in the road here where uh, uh, that pent-up, what I call the pent-up ideas, uh, that there's a potential of breaking out of this. Uh, yes, we have to lessen the, the day-to-day imposition of COVID, which I hope will happen, during the course of 2021. Uh, but with that, we, we need to break out of the gates, I'm gonna say, and uh, and, and the, the next project is uh, with Mark, we're looking with some districts and looking at, uh, we call it big spirit and the science of collaboration. So it's not, silver linings are temporary, they just happen now. But the, uh, when you go deeper than silver linings, you get into a deep uh, moral purpose, which we call uh, big spirit, and also cle- uh, a greater sense of, scientific collegiality, not just getting together, but getting together with efficacy. Uh, but that's one half of it. The other half of it though is uh, we're seeing new opportunities. Now I'm talking global, I'm talking about OECD, I'm talking about um, you know countries, uh, 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 Latin America, we're working a lot in Latin America and Chile and, uh, and other, other places where there's a real, again, really pent up over, over 50, 60 years and more. Uh, so, I, I'm seeing big developments in, uh, in Chile, big developments in the, uh, the countries we work on, even with OECD, which tends to be with the Western countries, a, a chance that I'm hearing in their discussions, and we have them um, all the time now. Um, Andrea Schleicher, who's the head of OECD, uh, has been talking very publicly about this. This is a chance to reposition, and the repositioning that he is talking about I have to say is exactly um, deep learning. The, uh, not deep learning as a general concept, but with the six Cs and the elements of uh, changing the culture and the way in which the systems will develop. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on this point that this will involve um, multiple countries. It will certainly involve the US. This is why the next phase in the US is crucial. It is pretty much, I'm gonna say, bottomed out, the country compared to its past on almost all dimensions. And this is a, and I think a lot of people uh, in, in in your country want to change that direction and, and, and education needs to be part of it so i'm'm um, I'm, uh, I'm excited by the possibility and a bit daunted by the the, the difficulty of seeing big changes in that are, are worldwide uh, even the uh, you know if you take Singapore or South Korea, the leaders there are saying, yeah we're being successful we've got huge leapfrog into, best of in the world, math and literacy. But our students are stressed out, our parents are stressed out, the society doesn't feel right. So everybody's worried, even the higher performance. And that's, that's Christopher Armel, for the work that we've been talking about doing, and we've been talking about this last half hour.
0: Well, and that's a great way to end the conversation. And once again, thank you so much for your valuable time. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Uh, me too. Thanks, Greg, very much.
0: So that's a wrap on this episode, folks. Be sure to check out Michael Fulham's vast list of books on his website or wherever books are sold. And until next time, always do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Thanks for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast. With this final episode of 2020, I'm very excited to announce that my new book, Education's Big Rally, Leading a Come From Behind Victory for Schools, will be out in 2021 from Roman and Littlefield Publishing, and I can't wait to share it with you. The book is based on my many podcast interviews here on the Reimagined Schools podcast and my own personal experience as a former school district superintendent and principal. So be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins for news and updates about the release date for this new book with the book a new website will also be launched in 2021 i'm very excited about that so be looking for a new and improved site at reimagineschools.net coming your way soon so until next time folks have a great holiday season be sure to catch up on a few of your favorite episodes over the break and as always continue to do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids